If you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning. Um, We come to what is my favorite chapter in this book, and this is the final chapter in which Paul is going to deal with justification, and then we're going to be on to sanctification in in chapter 6 through 8, and then we're going to be on to election in 9 through 11, and then we're going to be on to all the application in 12 to 16, and yet I think this chapter really is um, bringing out all of the rich fruit and all of the glorious truths about justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And so we're going to look this morning at Romans 5, and we're going to begin in verse 1 and read down to verse 5. And before we do, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as his word is read and preached this morning. Father, again, we cry out to you and we ask that you would come and that in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would take the word that is proclaimed and that you would give us understanding and that you would turn our hearts and that you would draw us to Christ and that you would build us up in him, that you would banish all fear and all anxiety and all worry and all doubt and all unbelief, that you would drive it far from us. Lord Jesus, we pray that we would see you and hear you, that we would hear your voice as the voice of the good shepherd and that we would know that having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us, sends the reading of God's word to us this morning. Well, as I think through the annals of church history and all of the stories of all of the men and women who have suffered for their faith, who have lost their lives, who have been ripped away from their families, who have been imprisoned, my mind almost inevitably goes to John Bunyan, the great preacher of England in the uh, 16th century. And Bunyan, as some of you will know, was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. It was illegal to preach the gospel out of conformist churches, and Bunyan would preach in barns to full crowds. He's one of the greatest preachers in the church. In fact, the man who is arguably the greatest preacher in the church, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said that he would give up all of his learning if he could preach one sermon like Bunyan. I think that Owen, maybe the prince of the Puritan theologian, said the same thing, that Bunyan was such a great preacher that his, um, his renown went out throughout um, his century and throughout church history. And, and yet, um, it's not his preaching that my mind is drawn to when I think about Bunyan. I think about his 12 years in the Bedford prison. I think about what was going on inside Bunyan for those 12 years when he talked about being torn away from his blind daughter for preaching the gospel was like having flesh ripped off of his body. The pain of not being able to be with his blind daughter. And yet, in the midst of all that, Bunyan said this, and I've read this in the past to this congregation. I love this quote. I never had in all my life so great an inlet into the word of God as now. 
Those scriptures that I saw nothing in before were made in this place and state to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never as real and apparent as now. Here I have seen and felt him indeed. I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all turns as I have found him since I came in here. Were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. Were it lawful, I could pray for greater trouble for the greater comfort's sake. I think that's foreign to us. As I prepared this sermon, I thought about myself as I, as I looked at this section and, and I'm hearing Paul saying, we rejoice in our sufferings. We, we, we know that the sufferings and the trials and the tribulations that God brings into our life, that they are there for a purpose and that those trials and, and those sufferings are to produce endurance and that endurance is to produce character and that character is to produce hope and that hope is not to put us to shame because we realize that God is leading us and guiding us to glory and Bunyan got it. Bunyan experientially got what Paul says in Romans 5, 1 through 5 and we need to somehow, not in prison, in the freest country the world has ever known with all of the accoutrements and luxuries and everything at our disposal, somehow we need to come to a place of understanding experientially Romans 5, 1 through 5. And I think this morning it'll help us to realize that all of this is connected to what Paul has been saying about justification by faith alone. There's so much of the Christian life is thinking right. Paul is, Paul is really saying here, you need to think properly about what you have in Christ. You need to think right. Paul's saying think. And so three things we're going to see this morning as we come to consider how our privileges impact us. What are the fruit of our privileges and especially our justification by faith alone? And we're going to see first knowing the privileges that are ours in Christ is fundamental. And then secondly, understanding the role of trials and tribulations in the Christian life is equally fundamental. And then finally, being assured of what's to come is fundamental for us to get to that place of experiencing these things. Well, first, Paul tells us that we need to know the privileges that are ours in Christ. Notice there in verse 1, he has that word, therefore. Therefore. Um, I know we've talked about this in the past, but therefore is arguably the most important word in the Bible. Um, actually, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, I sometimes, I sometimes think that the whole secret of the Christian life is to know how to use the word therefore. whole secret to the whole Christian life is to know how to use the word therefore. Elsewhere, Lloyd-Jones says, most errors in the Christian life are to be traced to our inability to use the word therefore in light of what is said. So if, if we're not living like we should be living, if we are not being fruitful Christians, we have not gotten the therefores of Scripture. And so Paul gives us this this glorious therefore in verse 1, and he says, therefore, in light of everything I've said, in light of how I've told you how you get a right standing with God only by faith in Jesus, only by trusting him, not in trusting what you're doing, but fleeing to Jesus in abandonment and in desperate need in going to him who merited righteousness for you and receiving that righteousness from God by faith alone in Christ alone. That's the big thing we all need. Therefore, Paul says, in light of all that, since we have been justified by faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, we need Romans 5.1 because we forget the truth about Romans 5.1. We need to be reminded that justification was a once-for-all thing. Notice that Paul uses this, what we would say is a past tense in English, having been justified. It's already done. Having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So all those times that we wonder, does God love me? All those times we wonder, you know, is he really for me? Is he really with me? You know, all those times where our souls have turmoil, either over sin or over fears or over circumstances, what we need to be reminded of is if we are in Christ Jesus, if by faith you are in Christ, the Bible says you have been justified and you have objective, legal peace with God. Not not a feeling of peace, per se, but an objective peace. God has made peace through the blood of the cross of Jesus. And that's the biggest need that you need. Because before we're in Christ, we're under his wrath. That was Paul's whole point in Romans 1. That we're under the wrath of God. The wrath of God hangs over us. We are destined for destruction. We are going to hell by nature. We are hell-bent and hell-bound. The wrath of God is hanging over us. God is our enemy. That's the Bible's witness everywhere. You by nature and I I am by nature an enemy of God. And what we need more than anything is peace with God, objective peace, reconciliation. And God has done that in the death and resurrection of Jesus. God has made that peace for us so that if you're in Christ, if you are righteous in Christ, you are at peace with God. You are reconciled to him. It is the sweetest truth in the Bible and the most hated truth by unbelievers. Isn't that fascinating? It's the sweetest truth ever that the God who by nature is my enemy has done everything to reconcile me to himself and has made peace through the blood of his own son laying down his life for me and providing righteousness for me is the most wonderful and sweet thing my ears have ever heard and yet the world hates it. The natural man hates it. The pride of man hates it because it crushes down the pride of man. It breaks the pride of man down but... It is beautiful because by the death of Christ, we have peace with God, who is called in Hebrews 13, the God of peace. Interesting, I'll just point out here, Paul will get to the importance of sanctification and living out a life of godliness in chapter six to eight, but he doesn't say, having been sanctified, you have peace with God. He doesn't say, now that you're walking like Christ, you have peace with God. No, he says, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that it is, a, it is such a perfect act. You know, I thought about this this week. What Paul is really doing here is he is saying, you've got to think right in order for all of the fruit of justification to be manifested in your life. I used to play golf as a kid and took tons of clinics, and I was pretty much like worse than all the other kids um, because I always forgot the technique, Always forgot the technique. In golf, technique is just about everything. How you hold your grip. In tennis, it's the same way. How you hold your grip, where you stand, how your back is, how your knees are, it's everything. And, and I would have golf teachers that would be like, you're forgetting again, and they would adjust everything, and then I'd hit it perfectly. And I think in the Christian life, it's a lot like that. When we forget justification by faith alone, our Christian life is going to be off. What Lloyd-Jones said, that most errors in the Christian life are to be traced to our inability to use the word 
Therefore, therefore, we constantly need to come back to having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, notice Paul gives another privilege, a different privilege in verse 2. He says, through him, that is through Christ, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So your justification was all by grace and it was through faith. It was you trusting in Jesus, receiving him and resting in him. But Paul now says, in him, you have access. That means that what our, our knowing that we've been justified, if you're justified, because there are probably people that are not justified in here. So my assumption is in any church, there are people not justified and people that are justified. If you are justified, that will mean that, that you will be continuing to trust Jesus. And one of the privileges that we have, notice, is that we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are continually going to Jesus by faith. We are continually going to God the Father by faith. I want to say this this morning. If you don't pray, if you don't pray, if you are not seeking communion with God really at all in your life, you're not a Christian. I'm going to say that as boldly as I can this morning. If you never pray or you hardly ever pray and you have no desire for communion with God, you're not a Christian. Paul's going to say one of the privileges that we have if we are in Christ, if we have been justified, is further, we have access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We continue to cast ourselves on him for more grace. We continue, we live in a world of grace. That's one of the beautiful things about the Christian life. It's, it's a world of grace. When we sin, we go back to him and we realize we've been justified and, and we realize that there's pardoning mercy every day and every day there's new mercies for us in Christ. And we go to him with all of our frustrations and our failures and our needs and our burdens and we cast them on him and we confess our sins and we cry out to him for provisions and we live, we live in the world of the grace of Jesus. That's, that's the privilege that Christians have. We breathe the air of the grace of Christ. It is, it is the access we have. We've been brought from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God and from the powers of darkness into the kingdom of the son of his love. And we go to him and we commune with him and we cast ourselves on him. And we don't even realize, we have no idea how much we have in Christ. I heard... Um, I heard uh, Sinclair Ferguson mention a quote this week at the conference I was at um, about John Owen saying, Christians, Christians, they, they have no idea, absolutely no idea what you have in Jesus. Absolutely no idea how, how infinite his grace is. You know, when Paul will come to talk about um, the love of Christ, He'll pray for the Ephesians and he'll say, he'll pray that they would know what are the length and breadth and width and height of the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. It's infinite. It's an infinite world of grace. So if you've been justified, you have been justified, you have objective peace with God, and you've been given access to the throne of grace. This is the whole point of the book of Hebrews, is that we get to go boldly to the throne of grace, that you have, in, in the words of one of my old friends, the greatest ear in the universe in Jesus. You have the greatest ear in the universe. I mean, when, when things go wrong, when, when trials come, what do we do? We pick up a phone and we, we call somebody we really care about a lot because we want somebody to listen to us and care about us. And Jesus is the greatest ear in the universe. 
He is the infinite God over everything who gave his life for us. And Paul here says, look, through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And then thirdly, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So because you've been justified, the hope of being in glory is certain and it is absolutely sure. If you have been justified, notice what Paul does here. He moves in verse 1 from justification to the end of verse 2 to glorification. So he says, having been justified, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, that one day you will be in the presence of God, you'll be in the presence of Christ, that if you've been justified, glorification is certain. It is absolute. Paul wants you to know that. God wants you to know that. You know, I was thinking about this on the way to church. It's not that Paul wants you to know this. And Paul wants you to know this. And I want you to know this. God wants you to know this. I mean, think about this. This is the word of God. God has inspired these words. And God wants you to know that if you are in Christ, you can rejoice and you ought to be rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God. But we get weighed down with the cares of the world. We get weighed down with the desire for other things and the deceitfulness of riches and our hearts get weighed down and we don't hope in the glory of God as we should. We forget our justification. We're not pressing into Jesus. We're not going to him boldly, even though we have access to him by faith into this grace in which we stand and we go through our day and then, and then hard times come and we complain and we grumble and we look joyless. And you know what? I think if you, if you um, could highlight, The four big words in this section, they would be faith, joy, hope, and love. You find all four of those words in in these five verses. Faith, hope, joy, and love. And I think Paul is saying, one who has been justified, those ought to be characteristic of our life. We ought to be people of faith. We ought to be people with great hope that we're going to be in glory with Christ, that that's a driving force for us. We ought to be a great people of love. We ought to be a people, and we'll see that in a second, who know the love of God and who abide in that love. Well, notice, secondly, Paul moves from calling us to know the privileges that are ours in Christ to understand the role of trials and tribulations in the Christian life. And you'll see there in verse 3, this is one of those verses where I think if we were honest, some of us might say, I really like verse 1 and 2. But why did Paul have to write verse 3? Did he really have to say, I like this. We have peace with God. We, we are justified. We've been justified. We're righteous before God in Christ. We have this access to him by faith into grace in which we stand. We have hope of the glory of God. That's all great. And we rejoice in suffering. I don't like that. I don't like that. I'm being brutally honest with you. I'm preparing this and I'm thinking, I haven't suffered. It's probably coming. I think if we're true believers, we should expect it. It's an expectation in the Bible that we're going to suffer. In different ways, we do suffer. Um, Most of us in America have not. Um, And yet there's this profound paradox in the Bible where when you get the things that Paul writes in verse 1 and 2... It enables you to go through the trials and the difficulties and actually to rejoice. Now, you may say, wait a minute. Are you saying we should love suffering? We should, we should like the way it feels? No, I'm not saying that. 
Suffering is always going to be burdensome. It's always going to be painful. The writer of Hebrews says that God's chastisement is never joyful, but is painful, but afterwards it yields peaceable fruits of righteousness. So not saying we're ever going to come to a place where we enjoy suffering. We're not ever going to enjoy losing someone that we love close to us. We're never going to enjoy being beaten for the gospel or torn away from our families the way Bunyan was. We're not going to enjoy that, but we're going to be able to rejoice. We're going to be able to rejoice in what God is doing through that. Two places I want to tell you in the Bible where I think this is so helpfully highlighted. Um, The first is Peter and John have been beaten for preaching the gospel at the beginning of Acts. And they come back to the other disciples and, and Luke says they rejoiced that they were worthy to suffer shame for his name. It's a Bible verse. They rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. So they saw it as a privilege to be able to suffer for the Savior. The Savior had suffered for them. He had given his life for them. He had redeemed them. He had forgiven them. He had made them new creatures. He had done everything for them. He was going to bring them to glory so they could look at that suffering for his name and they could count it all joy. And that's what James tells us, right? Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's obscure. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And then James goes through the different steps of why those trials lead on and how they build us up and how our faith is shown to be true faith. Um, And then an Old Testament example I give you is Job. Um, Job didn't suffer for anything that he had done personally. Um, Job didn't suffer for personal sin. The Lord brought Job through the severest trial that he could possibly bring him through. Because James tell us, tells us that the Lord meant good for him at the end. That's, James interprets for us the book of Job and says that the Lord intended good. He was going to bring good out of that situation. Now, how does that work? Well, I think on <clears throat> two very basic levels. Trials, if you're a true believer, let me say this first. Trials distinguish between believers and unbelievers. So lots of hypocrites in churches. When trials and tribulations come, we see what people really are. So trials expose what people really are. They, they show whether people have faith or not. People who endure hard trials and get bitter and curse God and turn their backs and walk away, they were hypocrites. That happens all the time. Happens all the time. Lots of hypocrites. Jesus tells us that in the Gospels. We know that. We ought to be examining our hearts whether we are. That's on every page of Scripture. So trials will expose whether you are sincerely converted or not. If you will go to Jesus even in agony, even in distress, even burdened, even not liking in any way what you're going through and yet trusting him through that, your faith will be shown to be what it is. You know, Peter tells us that in First Peter, he says that the testing of your faith, if necessary for a time, may come forth to the praise of God's glory. So when we're tried, our faith is tested so that we will see whether we are really trusting Christ or not. Because at the end, it's not our faith. It's not the nature of our faith or the strength of our faith. It's the Christ we're trusting in. So then I would say two things. I would say that trials and tribulations drive us to the Savior. As Christians, they drive us to the Savior. When hard times come, 
we should come to an end of ourselves and like Job, we should fall down and we should worship. That that's the right response of a believer. Now, it's interesting to me that when hardships come, we tend to think of our relationship with the Lord based on our circumstances. So we don't ever want to think, and we'll come to this in a minute, we don't ever want to think that because things are going well, God loves me. And because things are going hard, God doesn't love me. It's unbiblical to the core. Job, everything went bad for Job. God loved Job. Everything went bad for Jesus. God loved Jesus. Everything went bad for the apostles. God loved the apostles. Everything goes well for lots of wicked people that God hates. A mentor of mine uh, taught me when I was young that God thinks so little of riches, and you could say um, comforts too. You could say whatever. God thinks so little of comforts that he gives them to his enemies. Lots of people that hate Jesus live very comfortable lives. So we don't ever want to say, my life is good, things are going well, God loves me. My life is hard, God is not for me. Now, it's hard. It's hard. I fall into that trap. Things are going well, times of peace. I'll say things like, God is blessing. Well, wasn't God blessing when things were really hard and tough and my soul was burdened? Yeah, God was blessing. God was growing. He was humbling. He was teaching us to depend on him in those times. So we have to take the word just like David did, King David, and while he's being persecuted, he's saying, I trust in your word. So, so trials should drive us onto Jesus, should drive us to flee to him and embrace him and trust him more and cry out to him and depend on him. But then I want to read this to you. I thought this was profound. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually said, Trials and tribulations are very good for us in that they help us know ourselves better than we knew ourselves before. We're always overestimating ourselves. We always think things are better with us than they are. That's why we always need to be exhorted to self-examination. We're all on good terms with ourselves and we balance things up very cleverly. I like that. We're all on good terms with ourselves. We just balance it up. Well, I'm not doing that bad. I'm doing okay here. And Lloyd-Jones says, and it's only sometimes when a trial or a tribulation comes that we are enabled to see where we are and how perhaps we have been drifting away. So they're very good, you see, because they not only bring us to a better knowledge of Christ, but a better knowledge of ourselves. We thought we could stand. We find we are shaking. We thought we had faith that could meet anything, and here we are badly shaken by something comparatively small. And it's a very good thing for us then, you see. It gives us a true conceit of ourselves, and we realize that we are not as strong as we thought. It drives us back to a sense of dependence on him, and therefore the result is that we've got a much better conception of the Christian life than we had before. It was superficial before. It is now much deeper. It is now much deeper. And I think what Lloyd-Jones says here is everything Paul is unpacking here in verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. So you press on, you press on through the hard times. You say, my Lord Jesus will be faithful. He has been faithful so far. We will endure to the end. I love the story of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John one of the early church theologians, and right before he was burned at the stake at 81 years old, Polycarp said, 81 years, my Savior has been faithful to me. Can I deny him now? So trials produce endurance. You endure. You go on. You stare the flame in the face. You go on. 
I know that's foreign to you. It's not foreign to Christians throughout all of church history. It's not foreign to the Bible. It ought not be foreign to us. So we endure, and endurance produces character. We are conformed more to the image of Jesus. We are humbled. We are sanctified. We are built up, and character produces hope. And then we're given more hope because when things are bad, what do you need? You need hope. You need hope, right? When things are good, you tend not to hope for better things. When things are bad, you tend to hope this is going to get better. And so God uses the trials to help you hope in the glory of God that you ought to be hoping in now. So from justification to glorification, God places trials and tribulations so that we endure and grow and that we pursue and that we hope that we continue on in the faith and that we hope in the glory to come. Now, notice what Paul says in verse 5. And here's where I want to talk about being assured of what's to come. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what Paul is saying here is that um, the hope that we ought to have of being in glory is ought to be an infallible hope. It ought to be an absolutely certain hope. It's not, it's not, I hope things are going to get better. It is, heaven is absolutely certainly true because God has said so in the scriptures and everybody who's been redeemed is heading there, is heading to be with the lamb in glory. Hope does not put to shame. You will never, if you hope in Christ, if you hope in being with Christ, you will never, no one will find that hope to be futile, or to fail. That hope will absolutely come to fruition. That hope will be turned to sight. It will be realized. For all eternity, it'll be realized. Hope does not put to shame. And then notice what Paul says. How, how do I know this besides everything he's already said? And here's where you got to listen carefully. He says, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The doctrine of assurance is a, um, a very difficult doctrine. It is very multifaceted. It's not, <clears throat> I made a profession of faith when I was 10, and so everything's great. That's not how assurance works. Um, those of you who have struggled with assurance know that's not how it works. Bunyan struggled with assurance. John Bunyan. I encourage you to read his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners deep struggles for assurance to rest and know that God loved him and that God was for him and that he was not a hypocrite. And one of the things that God tells us here is that if you're in Christ, what has happened to you is that the Holy Spirit has come to indwell you and he brings with him the love of God, God's love for you and his, and, and the spirit bears witness with your spirit that you belong to God. There is, there's a subjective assurance that the Holy Spirit works in us. And at times that waxes and wanes. And when there's sin in our life and we're grieving the Holy Spirit, that wanes. And that's where repentance and faith and praying that God gives us a renewal and God gives us times of refreshing and God sends his spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God and we need to be praying that. We need to be praying those things. But God has given us himself as a down payment. God has said, I will dwell in them. I will be with them. I, one of the most, I've only had a couple moments in my Christian life where I've had these thoughts that I wish would have just lingered. 
I was so overwhelmed by them. And one of them was how amazing it is that, you know, we were made out of the dust. And we're going to go back to the dust when we die. We're going to go back into the ground. We're just dust. It's all we are. And Kansas knew that. All we are is dust in the wind. They must have been reading Genesis 2 and 3 because that's what God says. And that's what, that's what our experience says, right? We go right back to the ground. Um, and yet the infinite God, who has no beginning and no end, raises us up from the dead spiritually and says, I'm going to come and live in you. I'm going to live in you. That's remarkable. And, and let me say this this morning. Knowing that you've been justified is fundamental for your growth in grace. Knowing that you have access to God through Christ into the grace in which you stand and experiencing that is fundamental to your growth in grace and your perseverance in trials. Having God dwell in you. How could Bunyan, how could John Bunyan say the things he said? And lots of people go to prison and they complain and they groan and they say, I'm innocent. Everybody's innocent in prison. And, um, and they, they shake their fist at God and they shake their fist at everybody else. How could Bunyan say, I have had sweet sights of the forgiveness of my sins in this place and of my being with Jesus in another world. I never knew what it was for God to stand by me at all times as I have found him since I came in here. Because John Bunyan had the love of God poured into his heart by the Holy Spirit. And when we go through the trials and the tribulations, we'll be able to rejoice because God is with us. You know, uh, Joseph, he is envied by his brothers, hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, taken to Egypt, um, rises up in power, his boss's wife comes on to him, says he rapes her when he doesn't, he's thrown back into prison, most of his life spent in prison. And if you read the Genesis account, it says, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. I think Paul is saying, look, you're going to be able to endure in the trials and tribulations because you know the fruit of what you have in Christ and because the Lord is with you and because the Lord is with you. Let me say this morning, if you never come to Christ, come to him. He'll receive you with open arms. The Lord Jesus will receive you to himself. He will forgive all your sins. He will pour the love of God out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. He will justify you forever. If you are in Christ and you struggle with assurance, I want to encourage you to meditate back on what Paul says here in Romans 5. I think the next section is going to help you too, that Fight for that assurance. Pray for it. Ask God, send your spirit to bear witness with my spirit that I am a son or a daughter of God. I think that is our responsibility to do. And if you are walking closely with God, be comforted that the scriptures say that there is a sure and steadfast hope set before you. You will finish the course. You will endure to the end. You will be with Christ in glory. That's going to make everything that happens here, Paul says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is just going to be outweighed by the far surpassing weight of glory. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have given us. We thank you that we have been justified freely by your grace in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you have given us 
um, access to you through him by faith into the grace in which we stand. We pray that you would stir up in us a greater desire for communion and to be pursuing that access and to be entering into your presence in prayer and in communion and in thanksgiving and praise. We pray, Father, that you would uh, prepare us even now for the suffering that might await us. And we pray that you would build us up in faith and in hope and in love in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.